ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. And we have such trust through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. But their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted at the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so grateful that we can address you as our Father. You are so aggressive in your love in your mercy, in your grace, in your kindness, in your goodness. And you have lifted up a people who left to ourselves. We had no possible way of a welcome with you, but you have lifted us up and created a welcome for us by the work of your son on the cross. But also you have made that known to us by the mighty work of God the Holy Spirit, who made it known to us and gave us the energy, the capacity to actually allow you to embrace us instead of fleeing. Our Lord, we ask that today you would shepherd us 
into your presence, into an understanding of you and your ways that will really make a difference in our outlook and in our expectations of how we go forward in this life, in this time. We ask this of you, Good Shepherd Jesus, show yourself to us today, we pray. Amen. Mr. Lara is getting things going here. All right. It says on the screen, Hebrews chapter 8. And we are going to go to Hebrews chapter 8. But before we go to Hebrews chapter 8, I want to direct our attention to a brief passage that really reflects on what we're going to see in Hebrews chapter 8. And that is a passage that I have, when I've been discipling people, I've often said to them, this is the single most important passage in the whole Bible. And it's Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Now, that's my opinion. I don't have any pope that put their endorsement on that. Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Let me give you a little background here, by the way. Zechariah is a prophet to the people, the Jewish people, who have returned from the Babylonian captivity with the permission of the Persians who had conquered the Babylonians. They have returned. And the two men who led the return were Zerubbabel, a descendant of David, in the line of David, and Joshua, the high priest. Don't confuse them with the book of Joshua, Joshua. This is about a thousand years later. <laughs> and this Joshua was one of the two men leading them back. Well, what had sent Israel into captivity in the first place? Their rebellion against God had sent them into captivity. First, the ten northern tribes carried off by the Assyrians, and then the Judah and Benjamin that remained about a hundred years later, taken off into captivity by the Babylonians. Why? Because of the rebellion against God. When they stood with God, he defended them. In the Sunday school class earlier, we mentioned the fact that in the time of Hezekiah the king and Isaiah the prophet, 145,000 Assyrians surrounded the city of Jerusalem. 145,000. And the Rabshakeh, their propaganda minister, insulted the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He sent a letter into the city to Hezekiah the king saying, do you really think your God can defend you? None of the gods of any of these other nations have succeeded in defending them. What makes you think your God can do that? And Hezekiah did the smartest thing possible. He just took that letter in to the temple, laid it before the Lord and said, Lord, are you going to let them talk about you this way? Are you going to let them say this about you? And then as he was coming out, he was met by Isaiah the prophet who said to him, God's word to you is, no, I will not. I will take care of this. I got it covered, Hezekiah. And the very next morning, when the Jewish people inside Jerusalem woke up and looked over the walls. There are 145,000 carcasses 
because an angel showed up and took care of 145,000 Assyrians in one night. Is God able? Is our God able? Does he show up and do what he says he will do? Yes. But they have come back now from this captivity. The, the next generation, they rebelled against God. They rebelled against God. And God sent them into captivity with the Babylonians. They came back under Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest. And what is happening in Zechariah is Zechariah the prophet is being led from one vision to another to another by an angel. And this is Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Then he, the angel, showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. Now in the Old Testament, when you read angel of the Lord, and Lord is all in caps, that's the angel of Yahweh. That is the pre-incarnate God the Son. It is a visual of God himself. He showed me the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand, at Joshua's right hand, to oppose him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? What is your life experience? Now remember, Joshua represents the people before God. That's the job of the high priest. And so here he is standing before the angel of the Lord, which is really his role. Satan is standing at his right hand. Does Satan have a basis of accusation against the Jewish people? You bet he does. Well, what does God say? Satan, I rebuke you. I who have chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. The ultimate reality is Satan. I have chosen Abraham and his descendants. I will intercede on their behalf. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Is he dressed in his beautiful priestly regalia? The beautiful white linen with the ornaments all over him? No. He is dressed in filthy garments. Why? Because Israel has been so sinful. The reality is they have no basis of a welcome with God based on their performance. There is no basis. By the way, ask yourself, when you sin and you have confessed your sin, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, say the same thing about our sins that he says about our sins. If we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's faithful. Every time you confess it, every time you say the same thing about it that he says about it, he forgives it. And he is just when he does it. He is free to do it because Jesus paid sin's penalty for us on the cross. That gives his Father perfect liberty. To forgive and forgive and forgive. But I'm going to tell you something that you already know. Satan is still standing on your shoulder going whack, 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 whack. Why you can't believe 
that. Satan is a liar. He is accusing Joshua. And Joshua is dressed in filthy garments. And the Lord says to him, Satan, I rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Righteously, justly, he should be in the, a brand in the fire, but I plucked him out. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Then he, the, the angel of the Lord, answered and spoke to those who stood before him, the attending angels, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him, Joshua, he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you. Those filthy garments were the picture, pictograph of your iniquity. I have removed your iniquity from you. And then he says something very surprising. I have removed your iniquity from from you and will clothe you with rich robes. Not, not priestly robes, rich robes. It's party time. We're going to throw a party, Joshua. I am not forgiving you just because of it's the officious thing to do. I'm doing it gladly. We're throwing a party. This is exactly what Jesus taught in the parable of the prodigal son. When the prodigal son came back hoping to simply be welcomed back as a servant, he didn't dare ask to be restored as a son. What did his father do? His father threw away his dignity, pulled up his robes, ran down the road, threw his arms around his son, brought him back to the estate, and killed the fatty calf through a party. They're having a party. That's exactly what we see happening here. See, I have removed your iniquity from you and will clothe you with party clothes, rich robes. And I, Zechariah said, let them put a clean turban on his head. Well, this is the priestly turban. So yes, he is restored and welcomed as a priest. But God, what's the point of the rich robes? I'm doing it gladly. Not because I got him a legalist. Oh man, I made those promises decades, you know, centuries ago. I guess I have. No, I'm doing it with joy, with gladness. The happiest person there is in the universe when we are forgiven isn't us, it's God. He is glad to forgive us and restore us and welcome us. And it's party time, party time, party time. Now let's turn to Hebrews chapter 8, because what we see is that all that we see in the Hebrew Scriptures, in the promises of what is to come, is that there's the old promises. This is kind of... Bear with me. In the Garden of Eden, what did God say to the serpent? I'm going to take a seed from the woman, 
And that seed of the woman, that human that I make from her, Jesus, all, Jesus drew all of his humanity from Mary. He, he will bruise your head, serpent, while you bruise his heel. He will stomp on your head, crush your head. Yes, you will harm his heel, but that's not a deathly blow. Christ paid sins penalty. He completely broke Satan's power. All Satan is, has left to him is words. All, he's, all he can do is jabber at us. It's all he can do. We, as followers of Jesus, don't have to buy what he's selling. And we have these promises. Job 19.25, long before Abraham, I know that my Redeemer lives and shall be on the earth shall stand on the earth, and though after my flesh worms destroy this body, so from within my own flesh I will be raised out of the grave, and I will see God. Job 19.25 So we have this promise of the Redeemer long before the law was given from Mount Sinai. Why did God give them the law? And those of you who went through the book of Romans with us in our Sunday school class, you know, you know. Okay, he gave us the law as a diagnostic tool to show us our need for the Redeemer. The law shows us our level of wickedness because we can't keep it. The harder we try to keep the law, the behinder we get. And the 10th commandment is you shall not covet. Not only shall you not murder your neighbor, not only shall you not steal from your neighbor, not only shall you not commit adultery, you shall not want, not, not only shall you not defile your neighbor's reputation, you shall not covet your neighbor's life, wife, stuff, reputation. And that internalizes the whole thing. And that's when we say, ouch, ouch, ouch. So the law drove us to the point of saying, Lord, I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do this. And then God says, I'm glad you finally got, came to that conclusion because I have a solution for you. It's the Redeemer spoken of by Job. It's the, ho it's the seed of the woman. It's the seed of the woman. Isaiah 53, there is no more clear gospel presentation in the New Testament than you find in Isaiah 53, written 700 years before Jesus' birth. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We come to Hebrews chapter 8, and we find the author writing to these Jewish people in North Africa who had come to faith in Christ. They had run into the arms of Jesus. They had been loyal followers of Jesus. They had, but they have also endured because of their loyalty to Jesus and their public expression of that loyalty to Jesus, they've come under great persecution. And their hands are hanging down, their knees are weak, they've lost their energy. And in order to mitigate that persecution, they have been drawn into a, by a Jewish cult We've already noted this before, I understand that. They've been drawn by a Jewish cult that actually elevates the worship of angels, gag me. And that's why the opening portion of this letter 
the author is actually ridiculing the idea of worshiping angels because that's the very thing this cult is drawing them elevates. But he's showing them the superiority of the new covenant, the new contract that God has made with us versus the old contract. The old contract was the Sinai contract. The the Ten Commandments, all of that stuff, that all was designed to drive us to the new covenant, the new contract. Zechariah chapter 3, excuse me, Zechariah 31, 31. I will make a new covenant with you. This is 600 years before Jesus' work on the cross. I will make a new covenant with you. Not like the covenant I made with your fathers from Mount Sinai, which covenant they broke in every conceivable way. No, in this covenant, I will, I will, I will, your sins and iniquities remember no more. It's all on me. All you have to do is hold out an empty hand, and I will fill your empty hand with my mercy, my grace, my forgiveness. That's the new covenant. What does Jesus say in the upper room just before his arrest and crucifixion? We're initiating the new covenant. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. I'm going about to do the work on the cross that the new covenant requires. I will bear sin's penalty for the whole human race. Is there anything wrong with the law of Moses? Is there anything? No, nothing wrong with it. But it doesn't even begin to compare the whole format of worship and drawing to God that you find in the Old Covenant, the Sinai Covenant, would lead to nothing but frustration if, you're, if you have integrity and you're really, really willing to look at your performance. So we find these words in chapter 8 of Hebrews, verse 1. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord has erected, and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. We're talking about the high priests under the old covenant. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one, this high priest, meaning Jesus, also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest. Where, where is Jesus active in his priesthood? His priesthood is before the very throne of God in the heavens. That's where he is active as our high priest, before the throne of God in the heavens. By the way, in the Hebrew Scriptures, as we're going to see in this passage, Moses was instructed when he was on Mount Sinai, when you build that tabernacle, it must match the plan that was shown to you, the format of the building that you were shown while on Mount Sinai, and then he went down and governed the building of that tabernacle, which was a scale model <laughs> of what he had seen of the heavenly temple. The real temple where the real work of God is done that brings us a welcome with God is in the heavenly temple. Ze 
Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted. He actually had a vision like Moses. He had a vision into the throne room of God, the holy of holies in the heavenly temple. I saw the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple and the seraphim, the burning angels were swinging, were flying about with each had three pairs of wings, with two he covered with his eyes, with two they covered their feet, with two they flew. And they're crying back and forth, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. Reciting this back and forth and back and forth. And Isaiah says, I am undone. I am undone for my eyes have seen the Lord of hosts and I am a man of unclean lips. I have actually praised pagan gods. I'm a man of unclean lips dwelling in the midst of a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. There's no way I can survive this. And one of the seraphim burning angel, angels of fire took a coal with tongs from the heavenly altar and touched the lips of Isaiah and said, your mouth is cleansed. Your lips are cleansed. You will be God's spokesman. And that's when Isaiah was called to be God's spokesman to his generation. So the real temple has always been before the throne in of God in heaven. And that is where our high priest, Jesus of Nazareth, who was raised from the dead and ascended into his presence, does his ministry. Again, verse 3, for every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one, Jesus, also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law. By the way, as this is written, the temple is still a functioning thing there in Jerusalem. This is before the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem by the Romans. He would not be, he, Jesus, would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer both gifts according to the law who served the copy and the shadow of the heavenly things as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he, God said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. And that's why I said the tabernacle and later the temple was simply a scale replica of the heavenly reality. But now he, Jesus, has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant. The Levitical priests and the high priests were mediators of a, the covenant that brought condemnation. Jesus is the mediator of the covenant that brings redemption, forgiveness, restoration. He is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. What is so beautiful about Isaiah, excuse me, <laughs> Jeremiah 31, is that God says, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. What do we do? We receive 
the benefit. We hold out that empty hand. That's our role. Verse 7, for if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because find because finding fault with them, he, God says, <coughs> behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. This is Jeremiah 31. And with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers, in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put their laws in, my, in their mind and write them on, on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I will change you. I will write the reality of who I am, I am on you. What does Jesus say to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, the, whom Jesus calls the rabbi of Israel? Nicodemus, you must be born anothen. That Greek word can be translated either again or from above. Now, I know this is old stuff to many of you, but bear with me. You must be born Anothen. And Nicodemus understands him to mean again. What? Am I supposed to crawl back in my mother's womb and be born? What in the world are you talking about? No, 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 no. Are you the rabbi of Israel and you don't know what I'm talking about? What I'm about to, what I've been just said to you is already in the Hebrew scriptures. You must be born from above. You must be born from above. Isaiah I will pour water on him who is thirsty. I will pour floods on the dry ground. Jesus says, you must be born of water and the wind. That is the spirit. Where does, in the form of rain, where does water come from? It comes from above. I will pour water on him who is thirsty. I will pour floods on the dry ground. That is, I will give you my hope. Speaking to ancient Israel, that is, I will give you my, my Holy Spirit. And then Ezekiel 37 the valley of dry bones, all the bones are brought together and all the flesh comes on the carcasses. And Ezekiel, speak to the Ruach, speak to the wind, the spirit, wind, breath. Ruach is Hebrew, spirit, wind, breath. Numa is Greek, spirit, wind, breath. Speak to the wind, the Ruach, to come and fill these carcasses. And the wind comes and fills them and they all stand up. Suddenly, this is life. And this is prophetic of what is yet future to happen for Israel. Nicodemus, you must be born from above. Every person, every human being, every descendant of Adam and Eve has ever been redeemed. The initial event that took place was born from above, given open eyes to see and ears to hear the message and the incentive to embrace it and allow it to embrace them back. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write them on their hearts. When you come to faith in Christ, what happens to your conscience? It becomes so much more powerful than it was before. Things that didn't used to bother you at all, all of a sudden, uh, uh, uh. <laughs> 
your conscience comes alive. Why? Because he wrote his law on your heart, on your inner person. And you become much more aware of right and wrong, holiness and sin. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. That is a proof that you were authentically born from above when suddenly your conscience comes alive. And I will be their God. I will put my law on their, in their mind and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord. By the way, he's still quoting the Jeremiah 31, which is a picture of that day to come when Israel will be granted complete restoration. And at least in the initial phases of that, they won't have to evangelize each other because they'll already all be in the kingdom. Know me, know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Okay, I've got to share. I know I've shared this before. Put up with me. One of my greatest events in my entire life was teaching at the Christian Men's Job Corps, and which I did like 24 or 5 classes of, I mean, groups of guys over the course of about 12 years. <laughs> in the very second week of the first class that I taught, about a dozen guys seated around this table. D.J. Miller was sitting over here, and this other Hispanic guy was sitting over here around this table, and I had just finished my lesson, and I still had 10 minutes of my 60 minutes to go, and Tom Jones said to me, Mark, you got to fill your time. Okay. Well, the members of the Job Corps had just signed a covenant with the Job Corps. The Job Corps will do this for me, and this is what I will do back, and here's my signature. So I said, okay, guys, let's look at the covenant God wants to make with us. And I turned them to Jeremiah, starting at 31, starting in verse 31, and all I did was read the passage. And I got to that third, I will. I will their sins and iniquities, remember no more. And this Hispanic guy sitting right over here, his mouth fell open. He had never heard that before. <laughs> Free, complete forgiveness and restoration. I haven't heard that before. His mouth fell open. And, DJ, and there was a moment of hesitation, quiet. And D.J. Miller said, what do we do? And I said, well, what do you do if someone offers you a gift? And D.J. gave the perfect, he hesitated a moment. You hold out an empty hand. Perfect answer. I said, that's what you do. You just hold out an empty hand, and God puts the gift in your hand. Your job is just to respond to the message. And that Hispanic guy and his wife, they later made a video, publicity video, for the Christian Men's Job Corps using this guy and his wife. And... Tom Jones said it took us forever because they just kept breaking down in tears. <laughs> but that's what happens when you find out the reality of your sin has been removed. 
verse 13 of chapter 8. For in that he says, a new covenant. He has made the first, the one that condemned, he has made it obsolete. It did its job. Was there anything wrong with the old covenant? No. It did its job, which was to drive you to frustration so you'd cry out to God for mercy. And then God would say, yes, mercy. That Redeemer that Job spoke of, here's the mercy he provides. And that he says, a new covenant he has made the, the first obsolete. Now what is becoming, obsol- is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And he's writing to these people, why? Because they're turning back to what had never worked before for the sole reason that they have been so heavily persecuted because of the mercy message and persecuted from not just from the Jewish population but also the pagan because they're not going to worship Nero either. That they're seeking relief, but he's saying, whatever price you have to pay for being loyal to Jesus, God will more than make up for it. Here's the message every human being needs. You have a Redeemer. Hold out an empty hand and let him fill your empty hand with what only he can provide. And he will do it gladly. He's more eager to gift you than you are to be gifted. Let's give thanks to him right now. Our Lord... This room, my understanding is that all the people here have already experienced this mercy gift, have already received it. But Lord, we don't always know the reality. If there is any person in this room that has not with an open heart, open hand, simply said, Lord, provide to me what only you can do, forgiveness, and the very righteousness of your son gifted to me so that I can have that unrestrained welcome, glad welcome in your presence. Please enable me to do that right now. I'm receiving that gift right now with gladness and gratitude. And Lord, enable us in our own walk with you, to have this at the core of our understanding of this is the core of our relationship with you. It's not the core isn't our performance. The core is your performance, the performance of your son when he went to the cross and paid his penalty. Do we have responsibilities too? Absolutely. That's the point of this letter. But Lord, we are so grateful that Jesus got done what only he could do as as God the Son coming in mercy, grace. You sent him, Father, but he also was just as eager to come as you were to send him and paid sin's penalty for us. We, We give you thanks for this. In your name, shepherd, savior, high priest, sacrifice, Jesus. Amen.